met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's now 16 days since the old queen left the hive. Time for a new queen to emerge from the royal apartments to replace her. The firstborn stakes her claim to be ruler with a piping call. But that's not enough to win the throne. She will also have to fight up to a dozen royal sisters. A hive can only have one queen. So the colony must divide yet again. The departing swarm is on a risky mission. The newborn queen that leads it is a virgin and cannot guarantee the new colony's continued existence. Thousands of workers follow her nonetheless, drawn inexorably by her scent. The swarm seeks a temporary resting place. For bees, home is where the queen is. Swarming bees have no possessions to protect and so seldom sting. Although they do tend to bring the town to a standstill. Welcome to another episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, General Lee. And tonight, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this gentleman needs no introduction. Um, Sir Gary Wayne. Now then, Gary. Well, good day, and so happy to be back with you, and uh, hopefully you've had a, a good uh, holiday season and a good Christmas and a good Happy New Year, and all of the best to you and the audience going forward uh, in in the new year. Oh, that's very kind of you, Gary, uh, and same to yourself. I hope you had a, a nice Christmas and New Year. Uh, um, I did. I hope you're enjoying the weather. No, it's a little, it could warm up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> uh, glad you're okay, mate. And um, I, I'm really, uh, I'm really the privilege of having you back on. Um, stuck for words, mate. You, you like me, co-host. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the, the important thing is, is that we get some information out to people on topics that maybe uh, they're not as familiar with as they'd like to be, and. Uh, create some a little bit of curiosity and hopefully in sort of the more overall pictures that people really sort of take a step back as to what our history was, what it really means, what really happened and how that affects us today and going forward. Yeah, I think that's what makes everything so fascinating, Gary, to me. Um, you know, there's so many variants, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, it's just whichever whichever way you want to see it uh, i guess yeah uh, you know they say that there's that old saying that the that history is you know written by the victors 
But what yeah, people don't yeah. really understand is is though there are there the same class of people that have reigned over us throughout our history. And so they're only manipulating the history to sort of shine the light on the ones who maybe won the significant battles, but at the yeah, same time yeah. it's the same history. It's they're all, you know, sort of connected. And that's why when we talk about things is that the connections that are made that go cross culture, cross continent, in even in the ancient times, is absolutely startling once you start to realize what that might mean. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, do you know what? Um, I've always, well, always recently, um, but fascination uh, uh, like the, the Irish and the English mythology. Um, but uh, for Morians, um, could you go into history on the Fomorians, please, Gary? Yeah, they're an interesting group of people, and not much is known of them as the Fomorians, and not much is written about them as the Fomorians, and we get most of the information as they're known as the Fomorians out of the Labor Gabala, and that's the Book of Invasions. And there's one other book that I'm aware of that has a little bit of information on them, and that is the Akath Ameg Tured Gabala, which means the Battle of Meg Tured, so one of the battles that they fought. So the Book of Invasions is basically the history of the Irish, and it is a history that sort of goes right back to from a biblical sort of understanding, as he's mentioned in the Labor Gabala, is Cain. And so you get a tradition of uh, Cain visiting Ireland before the flood, and we also have a tradition of the Tuatha de Danann in Ireland, both before and after the flood. And I just sort of want to lay that on the table so that people sort of get a context that everything that we need to sort of look at, just as I've talked about on a lot of other shows and really trying to underline it these days, is we have to understand the history that has that separation point that's the event called the flood that's in all cultures all around the world. There's an antediluvian history. And then it picks up again after the flood with the post-diluvian history. And as we look at the details, we need to sort of separate that. So when we look at what happens after the flood, that's when we get the reference to the Fomorians as it comes out of the Irish history. And they are the original Irish Aborigines. So the first yes, settlers of Ireland. Um, and so they're called the Aboriginals because they're the first ones to settle in Ireland. So it would sound like they were, you know, they come from somewhere else. But yeah. when you look at sort of the settlement after the flood, I mean, there, there's, there's a resettlement of the whole earth. But they're the first people of Irish history after the flood. And it's important to, to, to note that. And there's... As you get written into the Irish history, you get a lot of sort of overlays and, re and some references back to sort of 
biblical history and chronology almost like it's sort of wedged or forced in to try and make that connection and I'll probably mention it a few times but I'll try and keep it back to a more what uh, accurate sort of uh, history and I'm not saying the Bible's not accurate I'm just saying that a lot of history a lot of times has biblical patriarchs sort of sewn in where maybe maybe they ought not to be um, yeah. And so when we look at the Formorians, they are in, I would say, sort of the rewrite of histories descended from Noah. So people understand this from when they, when, when they read about that, that all the people of the earth were populated by Noah uh, after the flood. And that somehow the Formorians in this line of thought um, derive from Ham, and his curse and the curse was on the tribe of canaan and this is important context even though this isn't totally accurate in terms of the fomorians the part that i am talking about biblically is accurate and that the canaanites lived amongst the raphaim and actually supplied wives or daughters to the raphaim which are either survivors as giants after the flood or are is, is what I tend to fall into a second incursion after the flood and that they produce hybrid humans that were smaller than the Raphaim and called in some, a lot of accounts are called hybrids or in ancient accounts, they would be called the uh, Shazu, the Shamal and the Amal. And some of that comes out of uh, Egyptian history and some of that comes out of more of the um, Indo-Aryan histories of, of the northern tribes like the Hittites and things like that. So yeah. you have this idea of the curse of Canaan and the sexual crimes that he did to Ham and or his uh, wife, depending on how you want to interpret that verse, and that, that curse that goes forward and what Canaan does in response to that curse being overlaid into the Fomorians. And it's good for sort of a contextual connection because when we're talking about the Fomorians, we are talking about giants. Maybe not connected back to the way that some of the uh, overlaying of biblical chronology and history into it is, but there is going to be a connection that's going to come about. And so they seem to be giants and they're described as giants. And, and even from a Gnostic perspective, and I'll just touch on that before I move forward, is, is that Ham um, is considered a giant. Ham's one of the sons of Noah. And uh, in this line of Gnostic um, recollection of the flood story and what happens after the flood is is that either Ham is just a giant that's on the flood and he's not actually a son of Noah, which is how giants show up after the flood in that particular line of thought. Sometimes all of his brothers are giants. Sometimes everybody on the ark uh, including Noah, our giants, and the wives in, in Gnostic. Lore. Really? So you get several yeah, you get several different versions. And you also get versions of Ham, as you saw in the last Noah story, um, where he was, uh, you had Tubal Cain that was shown as a stowaway um, on the ark. Ham is also considered that, and or in some of the mystical Judaic legends, it would be King Og that would be that one that hangs on to the ark and is fed by Noah and repopulates. So you get that sort of version. I tend not to 
go down that sort of line. But, you know, for sake of trying to understand polytheist history, we need to understand how the polytheists will look at things in terms of yeah. maybe that's where that connection starts to come from with that biblical sort of overlay. But I think it's things that are done in that sort of aspect are there to be understood by the people who really understand the history and are adepts and will understand what the true meanings are. So having said that, um, we know that they were the, the first settlers and they're described as giants. And not only are they des described as giants, but they're described as deformed giants in a lot of cases, which is where that sort of ham curse is kind of overlaid onto. So what we're told about these individuals is that they were very hairy. The Raphaim and the Nephilim were very, very hairy. So then that goes along also with the idea that the Fomorians were giants. And that these giants um, have human bodies, but they're also depicted sometimes with a horse's head, more often with a goat head. And what's interesting a about head. a goat head, yes. So what's interesting about that, and that comes up uh, particularly clear in the Akath uh, Megturid Gabala in the Battle of Tetra. I mean, or the Battle of the Battle of Magtred, um, that there is a leader named Tetra, or Tethra, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And he was the warrior leader of the Fomorians, and he was killed at that battle, but he had the head of a goat, which is interesting because when we look at other beings that have a head of a goat, we think of sometimes a Satan as being depicted in the occult with a goat head and the goat of Capricorn. Right with Pan as well. In Pan, yeah. And that's where yeah. I was going to lead. And more probably more closely related would be the Pan God. And or in this case, because of the Druidic connections, you have a god named Sununos, which is the same sort of equivalent to the Pan God in Greek mythology and history, and is equivalent to the same god as CERN in the Etruscan uh, pantheon, oh. which is the people before the Romans took over. And you also have Bacchus, who is a goat god in Bacchus, the, Bacchus in the Roman um, mythology. And you also have Baphomet, who's the... Oh goat god that the Templars worshipped, and they had a head of him, apparently, that uh, of this goat that uh, that they worshipped. And, of course, Azazel is depicted as a goat god, and he was the leader of the Watchers before the Flood. He was the one who's the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 that a second goat is sacrificed to without reason that's provided for us. The first uh, sin that is uh, goat that's a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement um, in in old Israelite law was for the sins of Israel, but th this is for the sins of the scapegoat, and that's where the term comes from. And that word scapegoat in the King James Version Bible Bible goes back to the word Azazel, and Azazel is the one who is the leader of the Watchers who went to the abyss into Tartarus, as it's called in polytheism, the prison for the fallen angels. So you get this sort of connection is, is, is this type of 
uh, creature somehow connected back to Azazel or, or the goat gods because they were, they're kind of hairy. Now, in other depictions of these, but I think they're connected to, to another people, and I'm not sure why we get this depiction of a goat, but maybe there's different branches of these kinds of giants after the flood. So they're also said to be sometimes deformed. So sometimes they have one leg, um, and sometimes they have one arm, and sometimes they, and sometimes they have two legs and two arms, but they always have one eye. And one it's eye. a large, large, rounded eye. So it's very cyclopean, so to speak. Right, and right. so th these... Uh, these are the people that are going to be around, even though they're going to be conquered by um, the Furbog, who are the next sort of people on the invasions. And, but the Furbog don't seem to have a lot of difficulty with them. And, and we'll talk about some of those connections maybe a little bit later. And then after the Furbog, you have the, uh, the Tuatha de Danan, uh, that are going to be um, invading Ireland, who are the fairy people, the fair folk, and are the shining ones and are giants, and they are also Scythians. And they actually defeat the Furbog, but they don't defeat them all. Uh, they actually intermarry with some of these creatures. And really? so you get, yeah, so you get the Fermorian. Uh, bloodline introduced into the uh, Tuatha de Danan bloodline, which would also be part of the mixing of the Furbog bloodline. And then you're going to have another invasion of the Milesians. And I think there was probably two invasions of these types of people uh, in two different waves. Uh, one, it doesn't really matter how far they are apart, they sort of get conflated, but that becomes that sort of grafted in scion race of the fair folk of the Tuatha Du Danann, who they who sort of takes the sort of the premier position in terms of the name of the um, people of, of Ireland. And uh, so you have this sort of mix of, of all these different people that all have a connection for the most part that goes back to uh, Greece and Scythia. And it's, right. it's something that we need to sort of dig into a little bit deeper, I think, if we're going to uh, understand it. But the Furbog, the Fermorians don't completely disappear, though. And they tend to become people that will prey on these other peoples and invaders over time. So this is sort of a longer lasting part of the race that isn't totally intermixed uh, into this sort of hybrid giant race. Um, and they prey on them, and they blackmail them, and they terrorize them, and it's just sort of part of the folklore that, that, that moves forward. And so when we look at the, uh, the, the, the Formorians, we need to look at them probably as coming from the offspring of... of, of human females, and some sort of divine creature, right? Some sort of angelic type of creature because they tend to be physical in nature. They tend to be giants. And, yeah. 
and they're 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 just sort of part of the history that is kind of un, unexplained um, that becomes the you know the greater sort of culture and after they die and I, i'm i'm making a link here that after they die because of how they're described as well so you get the physical sort of description right yeah. and then you get the spiritual connection as in a spirit and so they're thought of as spirits of the earth that haunt the people so it might be a demonic spirit that is haunting people just like you had heroic worship of the of the heroes after they died because the giants when uh, heroes in greece because when the giants died their bodies their their bodies you know died but the spirits didn't go to sleep and they weren't allowed to go into heaven and they roamed the earth and they would go back to the places where they reigned from with sort of a vicious sort of nature because they weren't happy that they couldn't interact with the earth and they would haunt their the people that they used to uh, rule over and people used to create idols and worship them and do sacrifices and do everything to pacify them to make this evil spirit go away they're also called the demonic pirates demonic tyrants pirates as in oh, pirates sorry a pirate yeah as with a p and i'm thinking it's because of it's kind of a conflation of the physical nature where they would steal cattle and stuff like that and sort of a connection into what they were like afterwards as what they call the more or the phantom and that's also the sort more. of connected to yeah m o r in 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 old gaelic out of out of ireland and or connected very closely with the word mirror which is c which is probably you know association with sort of the pirate term and i think that that demonic pirate is sort of revisionist history sort of re sort of labeling it in more of the context when some of this history and stuff was, was written down but but the thing is that you get the phantoms just like you get the banshees and other types of demonic spirits that are associated with the tuatha de danann right and 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 the fair folk and the irish lore so when we have this idea of a demonic spirit again that suggests that they're the offspring of and descendants of a fallen angel and a human female because that's what a demigod means it's the offspring of a god and a human female just as Poseidon and Clyto created atlas and the other 11 kings of atlas or that zeus um created uh, with a human female several different uh, heroes like um uh, Hercules and Perseus and and others and this is the same story as the Nephilim in Genesis 6 1 through 4 and likely the same story with the recreation of the Rephaim after the flood so these would be some sort of second incursion or survivors of the types of giants that were around before the flood and so and, and but i think more of a, a more of a recreation than than anything else so yeah when we look at um the other people that are involved with these invasions um you know we have uh, the firbolg which are the ones that come after the formorians 
and in the, the Labora Gabala, um, you know, they're described as being um, from Nemed's son, named Star, and they're from Greece and Scythia, and uh, connected to the Parthelonians. Uh, and right. uh, Nemed is means privileged and is connected as druid-like priest kings, which what the heroes and the kings uh, uh, of the dynasties were. They were priest kings. Nemed right. was a son of a Scythian named Egnomad. And uh, who has a descendancy as it's taken back with sort of a biblical sort of overlay to Magog and to Japheth. And what's interesting about that is, is, and I think as we talked about in the Tartarian show, is is that Magog and Gog, Gog's also in the Bible, but in a, in a prophetic sort of sense in, in Ezekiel 38, 39 and Revelation 20, is, is Gog is the son of Iapetus, which is sort of what, Japheth gets sort of connected to as sort of the Greek um, uh, Japheth, but Iapetus was a parent god, and he created giants as well, and he was the god of the sea, just as we had the Fermorians connected to the sea that we talked about just a few minutes ago, that Poseidon takes over after the war of the gods, after the Olympian gods in Greek history, sticking with the Greek history, and uh, takes over with uh, Zeus and the other Olympian gods. And, and they, uh, in mythological history, they slay all of these parent gods, but I think they actually sent them, they went down to, to Tartarus or to the abyss. And so I think you, what we're seeing here is, is some sort of genealogy that's been overlaid for Christian acceptability so they wouldn't be persecuted by the Roman church that has the allegories that sort of takes them back to the fallen angels, right? And and so we need to understand that that connection that the Firbolg are Scythians. Scythians. And Scythians from Greece, just as the Tuatha de Danan are Scythians. And just as the Malith, the Milesians the various Milesians that are going to come after the Tuatha de Danan also are Scythian bloodlines. And so this is all sort of this invasion of the Scythian giants. So when we talked about in the Tartarian show that there was a Western part of the Tartarian empires that were built, you follow that through the Tuatha de Danan after the flood. So that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. and We can come back to that um, down the road if you want. Yes, so following yes, this, I, yeah. So following this line of thought, um, just as the, uh, the 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 Nomad are known as the the Muinter Nomad, the clan of the Nomad, the Nomadians, the um, Medians, the Medians. Yeah, they actually have two sort of invasions of Greece. They they or I mean of Ireland. They go and then they come back. Late, uh, return to Europe and then come back again. So that's why you have to be careful in terms of all the different things that you might read about them. And But understand that the Formarians were there first. So no matter how many times people will conclude that the Firbog or the Nemedians actually migrated there, I think it's twice, but it is probably before uh, the Tuatha Danan is the first one, and then maybe another one afterwards. But they're all the right. same kind of people. Just yeah, as the, right. the, the the people that are going to honor Albion, Magog, and Gog in 
Celtic, Welsh, and English history have invasions from the region of Troy as well, right? Just as the French do. And the kings and the queens who start the monarchies in both England and in France will British, take their yeah. genealogies their genealogies back there. So if we understand that that's where a lot of this sort of history comes from, and if we go now back to the rounded eyes, the single eyes, the cyclopean sort of aspect, the Cyclops has an interesting mythos in Greek history that are a parallel story along with the giants that are created, but very, very sort of similar. So when you look at the Cyclops, you get different groups of the Cyclops. You get a divine group, and then you get a a semi-divine or a demigod group, which again is similar to gods and demigods of the of the giants and the heroes, the gods like Zeus and and Kronos and the offspring demigods like Zeus or um, Theseus or the numerous names that we get coming out of Greek history. So the divine ones, the godlike ones, are offspring gods just like Zeus is, just like Osiris is in Egyptian history, just as Enlil and Anki, you have this offspring set of gods that are going to replace the parent gods. So these Cyclopean divine ones are created from parent gods, just as Zeus was, from Gaia and Uranus. And again, the same sort of way. And they are like uh, siblings to the Gigantes, and the Gigantes included like the hundred-handed ones, and these were these monstrous things that also had one individual's name as Gyges, or Gyges. Did you say, oh, sorry, Gary, did you just say a hundred hands? Yes, I did. And, and, and many, many well, heads, <laughs> but that's a different... <laughs> rabbit hole to go down and these were huge things and the word giant roots back through gaies or gyges which is the root word for gigantes which probably should have a um an e or an i there so that it would uh, be pronounced with a y as gigantes as it yeah. comes down through greece but so the word giant in its etymological roots goes back through gigantes um which the hectochinaries were also called it's a similar name which are the hundred-handed ones were back to gyges as the root word for giant and for gigantes and gyges was one of these gigantes so you have this this sort of giant word that's rooted in the creation of these sibling brotherly secondary god groups of individuals by the parent gods. Now, what's interesting about that is is there are three of these uh, that, uh, you know, are talked about in in Hesiod, and one is called Bright, uh, as in Argies, meaning bright, and you have Brontes, which means a thunderer or thunder, and you have Steropes, which is lightning or a lightener, and it's, it's kind of interesting that they're related with sort of storm aspects, yes, because because the Formorians were actually weather spirits of storm, fog. Yeah. So there's, again, so you get this sort of allegory that there's a connection back to these divine 
cyclops uh, that were monsters. And of course, they're going to be uh, sent to Tartarus, which is the abyss, um, because they they forged weapons for the gods, but the gods get upset at them because the arrows that killed Asclepius, which is the god of healthcare, uh, symbolized by you know two serpents and things like that, as in the medical association icons, is you know, these arrows that are killed that kill Asclepius. So they're going to punish them. But he also creates these these individuals also create the weapons for Zeus, as in the thunderbolt. So these are powerful, godlike beings. Yeah. And as the story goes on, and I won't draw this out too much longer to make the connection, I just want to give sort of the, the, the understanding here that there, this is a similar Nephilim type of story, a parallel one with a different kind of Nephilim type of creature or Raphaim type of creature as yeah. they show up after the flood. The divine group of Cyclops mate with human females and create a new breed of people. And of course, the Cyclops have one eye. And so they now you have giants created with one eye that are the offspring of an offspring creation god, just as you have Zeus and Osiris and all of these other offspring gods around the world who are offspring gods of the parent gods, but who also create uh, demigods and kings just as their parent gods did. So they're all yeah. acting in sort of a similar way. And the most famous ones of these ones show up in Homer, as opposed to the, the divine ones that are more into Hesiod uh, theogony. And uh, Homer names several of them. You have the more famous ones as uh, uh, uh Akamas, and Polyphemus, and Polyphemus is uh, connected with uh, the story of Odysseus and partners with them in the Homer line, and these are the brethren of Polyphemus, so a particular branch that is going to be partnering with Odysseus, so they're multiplying, so much so that they're a race uh, from Poly Polyphemus as being called uncivilized shepherds, whatever that means. And I haven't really <laughs> dug into what all of that means, but they're obviously vicious shepherds of some sort that Odysseus <laughs> is going to partner with because of their warrior capabilities, even though they have just one eye. And I can't help but think that this would be a creation that either survives the flood which is, you know, because we're not told exactly how giants survived the flood in the Bible, or a recreation after the flood, just as the Raphaim were recreated after the flood by the offspring gods, like Zeus and uh, Osiris and Anki, just to name a few, or Baal in the Canaanite pantheon, or Adonis, they're all the same god. Uh, and that these are the beings who are created right after the flood by fallen angels, um, and they are the aborigines of the land of Ireland, because they migrate there, probably from the, the Greek area, just as the Raphaim are the aborigines of the land of Canaan, 
and the Rephaim are connected back as being part of the four branches and probably the root branch of the Indo-Aryans or the Indo-Europeans, yeah, which are also known as Scythes and Aryans. And, and as I say, there's four branches of them. And they settled not only into uh, the Scythia region, but the Greek region and the Greek islands. So you, even into Crete, where the Philistines came from, the, you know, the Cherethim and all of the, the giants that, that were there. And you have all of them sort of interconnected. And as I'm writing in my new book, there seems to be four of these different branches of the giants that in polytheist history escape from Tartarus that we talked about in the Tartarian oh, yeah, yeah, but I think they are recreated after the flood because the Raphaim are described as pale white skin and they're described as blonde hair and red hair and hazel eyes and blue eyes. And in the tradition that we get sort of out of polytheism and secular history as they sort of mesh is, is that they're also the Tuatha de Danan, as they're called, and the, and the tribe of Danu. So they migrated out of Scythia, where they escaped in the polytheist version, down into the Middle East as the, uh, as the original Aborigines and the settlers before uh, Babel happens and the Canaanites are going to settle in there and intermarry with them. Because Babel happens somewhere around 100 years after the flood. So there's that period of time where they could be settling these lands as the aboriginals. And that's why you have these different variations of the Indo-Aryans, these four different segments as being the aboriginals of Greece, the aboriginals of Scythia, the aboriginals of you know, places like Crete. And it makes sense that they become the aboriginals of the Fomorians. And if they were created with sibling type of creatures, and I know that's an if, but we're just trying to connect the dots here. Yeah. You can imagine a cyclopean type of giant being recreated again after the flood that would have been part of that whole culture, part of that whole mythology, which is why I walked through the Greek mythology there yeah. and migrated over to, at least a branch of them migrated over to Ireland. Do you... Gary, you know what they used to be said about the, the giants? How, how tall are we? Are they, do they do they maintain the size of being big lads or are they slightly smaller? Or is it not on record? Well, I think what happens is is, is you get this division of the antediluvian giants from the post-diluvian giants, and then I'll talk about what we see through history. So I think the Nephilim were much bigger than the Rephaim. And that's why you get a distinction of the two names in the Bible of the antediluvian from the post-diluvian. And then, and which is also one of the reasons why I think there's a second incursion. I have a lot of reasons, but there's, but I'm open because we're not told how that maybe the Nephilim survived and maybe the Rephaim were a different division of the Nephilim or the giants created right, before right. the flood, but I lean towards second incursion. But they seem to be smaller than the Nephilim, the Rephaim, which are the only giants we see after the flood and from a biblical perspective. And so yeah. I think that they're, they're, the second incursion are smaller. So we get, let's say, Gilgamesh out of 
the city of Uruk, a king of Uruk, and he was described in the Sumerian text. And then the Ugaritic text, where the Rapium have their records of the Baalim and having Baal and the Baalim as their creators, they're doing fertility rituals and things in the Ugaritic text to reproduce more of the Rapium because they have a reproducing issue. Um, yeah, they're, they're not as fertile. The Nephilim, on the other hand, before the flood, seem to have been able to procreate in great numbers, so much so that in the Atlantean account, uh, as recorded you know, in Timaeus and Critaeus, mostly where you get most of the details out of, they were more populous in Atlantis than the humans. That's right. how much, and they were created well into the antediluvian world in, in the sixth generation, as recorded in the Bible. But after the flood, they seem to have a reprodu uh, reproducing issue, and they're also being sort of diminishing in, in numbers. But anyways, back to, uh, 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 I'm just saying that there's also a uh, Gilgamesh account in the Ugaritic text where the Rapiu show up which is the Semitic word for Rapha and Raphaim as we get it in, in the Bible. And he is 11 cubits tall. And as a, as, as a king of Uruk, he would be calculated, as Josephus calculates the size of the giants, as a, as a royal cubit, 21 inches, he would be over 19 feet tall. And he was four <laughs> cubits wide, and that would be seven feet wide. So there were Seven feet wide? Yes, they were, I, I, and, and, and you get a similar sort of a relationship in Og's bed, which was nine cubits by four cubits as well. As, as well. So there's, there's, there was thought to be a close to a two to one height to width ratio of the giants compared to about a three to one of humans. So they were 50% wider, just as the dimensions of the bed were there to reflect that sort of ratio and as they're called in isaiah 25 as the terrible ones there's a word that's used as strong that goes back to the hebrew word as for strong strength powerful and as 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 you take that back um, to uh, strong again and, and fortresses and is also known as stout because strength was understood as being wide as well and stocky like a WWF wrestler or a lineman in the NFL football. So they were big, huge, and fleet of foot. These were monstrous sort of beings. And this is the size, 19 feet tall, 7 feet wide of a giant after the flood. Now, Og would be a little bit smaller because his bed would only have been on a royal cube at about 16 feet long and 7 feet wide. So he would have been a little bit smaller than um, Gilgamesh, but Og is the last of the Raphaim, the last of the original Raphaim created after the flood. And you roll that forward to another size down the road with Goliath, and he has six cubits and a span from Gath and would have been king of Gath and also why David took five smooth stones because he thought he was going to have to kill all five kings of the Philistine Pentapolis that day. Not that he thought he was going to miss. And Goliath was six cubits and a span. That would make him 11 feet, three inches tall using a royal cubit. So more than twice the height of uh, the Israelites at that time. Now, what's going on here is, as you see this 
continuous sort of degradation of height of the giants. And that's why I went through some of the details on that just to show you. You'd have, you know, um, a rook, or I mean, Gilgamesh, who's before uh, Og, as we sort of get a historical recollection, uh, who is smaller, and then Goliath is smaller still, but still a huge giant, right? And before the flood, these giants were thought to be 20 to 50 feet tall. They are big lads. Yeah, and in the book of Amos, too, we get a simile or a metaphor of the Amorites who are a hybrid. So they'd be seven to nine feet tall. But the original patriarch would have been a Rephaim name like Amaru, which is also known as the god. That was also another name for Baal, but that's where Amor, Amorite probably comes from. And they were described as strong as the oaks of Bashan. Bashan is Mount Hermon. And the powerful oaks were you know, used to make um, you know, all the things that uh, required significant strength on. And they were also as tall as the cedars of Lebanon. Now, they grew from 50 to 100 feet tall and were 40 feet around. But you can imagine what? the width of them. But the giants, that's a simile. So they're just saying that they're, they're like that. They're the giants, like the giant trees of Lebanon is a comparison. Yeah. But what I'm saying, though, is, is that we're not talking about seven-foot giants here. We're, even in the more sort of degraded version as they come down by the time of, of Goliath, they're still quite big. But it's that inability to reproduce combined what they want to keep their bloodlines pure because they're creating all of the dynasties of the world, both before and after the flood, the royal bloodlines. And they intermarry to keep that bloodline pure and that they can create a direct genealogy back to the parent, patriarch, Nephilim, Raphaim, and fallen angel or God as their legitimacy for their divine right to rule, just as James Stewart who is the one who um, patronized for the King James Version Bible, said he also had the divine right of rule. And that goes back to the Balim of Mount Hermon. So they're going to want to keep that bloodline as pure as possible. But when you do that, you create blood diseases like hemophiliac disease. Or you create it in the modern term with the modern royals as known as something like the Habsburg jaw disease and you can google that and it's a deformed sort of face and jaw but they need to be able to bring in bloodlines from outside their inner circle which will have had bloodlines that have intermixed with humans so that they can continue to um, keep their bloodlines as pure as possible but not create the blood diseases and are able to also reproduce so there's those needs that are going on. So as you do that, you get a reduction in the original looks that they would have received from their patriarch parents or matriarchal parents. If, if there was a female God that created and there's accounts of that throughout polytheism because it's being thinned out with the human bloodlines being scioned or grafted in. And so not only their looks sort of dissipate, just as if somebody Googles Akhenaten, which is the classic seraphim of the, you know, the 
serpent-faced angels, the watchers of Genesis 6. The watchers, as they're called throughout polytheist um, cultures, that were led by the seraphim and provided the religion and provided um, the government, provided the laws. Um, they were the ones who looked after that aspect of the rule, both in, in the angelic realm and in the, in the physical realm. And that's why you have gods depicted around the world as serpents and kings and queens uh, not only depicted as serpents, but being right. called serpents, just as they were yeah. in Sumeria or wherever. These are the feathered plume serpents of the Kishamaya, um, you know, with Quetzalcoatl and all the different yeah. serpent god names that went along with that. And so that if you look, go back to what I just said, if you Google Akhenaten, you're going to see that serpentine look. This is 1,500 years after the flood or so, depending on which chronology that you're using. And... He has a protruding chin, high cheekbones, large wraparound eyes, and this elongated skull. And this is way down the road, uh, circa 1200 BC uh, to 1300 BC, again, depending on which chronology that you're going to use. Some people might even take it back to 1400 BC, but in that zone. And he still has that serpentine look. And he is depicted right? generally as taller, but not as this supersized giant, even though giants were still around there. So what you see is the the, the individuals becoming smaller. And, you know, take that word Lugal, for example, in, as in um, Lugobanda, which was Gilgamesh's father, uh, fifth generation after, after the flood. And Lugal means big man because kings big were... Man giants right they were the ones who the warrior kings yes lugal means big man in in, in the sumerian lexicon as you bring that out uh, out of history and they continued to be large as you go down through the history even though they're diminishing in size just as you get the hybrid humans that are smaller who intermarried with the Raphaim patriarchs and as you continue to intermarry they're going to eventually get down to human size and the looks are going to be more human than not you know even in the time of the monarchy in Israel they are going to choose uh, a man named Saul Saul's not his real name it actually is more of a title um, and I, I cover this off in my book. And I think the name Saul comes from a Horim king and a title uh, out of Genesis 36, where it's talking about the Horim dukes of Edom. And you have a, have a Duke Saul, which is a Horim Raphaim king in the Edom area. And he is chosen. And, and I think part of the why he may have taken the name and title of Saul is because he was a full head and neck taller than the rest of the Israelites. And the Israelites wanted their first king to be, and to have a king, and to be a king like the king of all the Gentile nations that were led by giants because they wanted to be protected by this warrior king, right? So there was this tradition that we even see, I think, that goes to part of the reason why Saul is being selected um, by Samuel for the first king. And so, I, and I'm not saying in any way he's a giant. I'm just saying that the understanding was is that the leaders should be taller. They should be these big warrior type of individuals. 
And so that's why you get this tradition of these warrior kings coming down through history and, and leading the battles, because that's one of their qualifications. But as I say, they, they diminish in size over time. So I know that's a very long answer, but it's key if you're trying to figure out why the royals today and royale ends in AL, which is a transliteration for EL, um, which is a god or a fallen angel. And Roy, in the etymology, comes from king because they're the kings of God. They're the kings of the polytheist pantheon who gave them the divine right to power. And all those worlds, like Royal and Regal, they all go back etymo etymologically back into the giant history of the, the dynasties that they had built. So we don't see them in the same looks that they originally created or the same size that they were originally created because the blood has diluted all of that down through history. Okay. He said, there's just so much that, but it's all, like you said, it all eventually comes back on itself. It's like, um, and how, how many coincidences can there be, Gary? Well, that's at some point in time you get into mathematical impossibilities to have that many coincidences, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> and so, sure. and and if you rule out that those connections are are not impossible, then you have to look at what does that mean, right? Y yeah, <laughs> and it means that we have not received from those who control education, religion, government and the military and the complete elite throughout our history, the whole history, because they don't want this information to come out. And so if people knew as humans, for the most part, that we're being led by a illegally created hybrid demigod race that have kept us in a feudal system throughout history, they'd probably rise up against them. So they don't want that information yeah, out. Yeah. And in the age of education, they had to create ways of suppressing that. So they took over the sciences. They took over the education with the creation of the Royal Society in 1662 with the charter that was created by Rosicrucians and Freemasons answering to the higher secret societies of the Masonic royal bloodlines. And when I talk about um, Masonic royal bloodlines, you've got Masonic societies uh, in all the different families. And the most infamous one would be just, just as one as an example, and there's there's more. Uh, it's Knights of the Seraphim, which is the uh, Odin bloodline. And I kid you not, they call themselves the, the Knights Odin of the Seraphim. Yeah, because that's the Norse history of the bloodline, right? Yeah. And so they have their kings, um, just as we get Thor and all of that mythology and, and all of the yeah. elven mythology that's overlaid into the Lord of the Rings and stuff. That's all there to sort of tell their, their history. But there are different internal Masonic orders that are royal masons. And the ancient masons were all masons and uh, we're all royal bloodlines, just as the Templars were, which is the modern creation of the secret societies that split into these different decentralized branches after the fall of the Templars in um, 1307. So they create the Royal Society, Rosicrucians and Freemasons in 1662. They call themselves the last of the sorcerers, 
and the first the of the scientists. Yes. The last of the, the last, last. Yes, of because they're part of the polytheist religions that look at sorcerers and magi and witches and warlocks and all the associated names like that as priests and priestesses that control the seven sacred sciences that merge I, with I, the knowledge of the gods, right? So that's why you had these kings that were talked about in the Fomorians known as the Druidic priest kings, you know, because it's that polytheist religion was all part of that organizational structure when I talked about the religions, right? Right. And and so <laughs> I, I know this gets really kind of crazy at times. It's um, fascinating, but, Gary, it really but, is. <laughs> With the creation of the Royal Society, they're going to control what gets taught, right? And they're going to uh, do four things with science and education beginning in 1662 outside the church, which means they also, um, just to cover this detail off, they had to get control of teaching and the sciences and the seminary schools within the uh, Roman church as well, which is why they created the Jesuits which are answerable to you know, right. probably the Committee of 300. Um, but that's another rabbit hole. And they also got control of the banking with that as well inside the church, just as they took control of the banking outside the church with the uh, with the Rothschilds. And well, so you fell, have... Fell into place nicely for them, it? Yeah. And so this organization, they take up the same principles with the creation of the Royal Society as Enoch, son of Cain, did when he created mysticism before the flood. Uh, and their descendants provided the daughters for the creation of the Nephilim that are talked about in Genesis 6. But they create through the seven sacred sciences that he separates into seven disciplines. And this is the knowledge that comes down from Cain, from Adam, that God taught Adam while he was teaching Adam to run this incredibly sized, small like i would call it country-sized agricultural nation with just himself and later his wife eve that's created that has four rivers in it it has orchards it has uh, crops it has uh, ranching uh, you name it it's there and that's the knowledge that was taught adam to run it that gets passed on to cain and he has to leave because he kills his brother he passes this knowledge on to enoch who funnels it into the seven different disciplines that we know that creates the uh, mystical religion, that creates the mystery schools, that forms the secret societies, and all the patriarchs of uh, that the Masonic reps sort of ritualize and honor are people like Tubal-Cain, Nimrod, Cain, Enoch, Lamech, all people of the creation of and extenuation of the seven sacred sciences. But there are four principles were. One is not to give God credit for anything. Two, to lead people away from God. Three, to degrade God as much as possible. And four, to honor the pantheon of gods. And if you look at education and science today, it does all of that. Yeah. <laughs> and so they suppress the knowledge through those organizations to control it. Uh, which is, seems to be more control over the years more control um yeah always to control because they you know yeah. they want to continue to keep their position and their job in their creation was to lead humankind into destruction 
And they actually came very close to doing that, thus the flood and the restart. And again, you have this thing that happens at Babel, which, you know, 100 years after the flood, you get an archetypical Antichrist figure with Nimrod, the introduction of the seven sacred sciences that Hermes brings and partners to him as Masonic history goes, that they use to build the city, build the tower, and introduce the Enochian mysticism. He has complete sway over the Noahites, the remnant of the Adamites within 100 years after the flood, thus the dispersion, so that that control doesn't happen until the ordained time. But the issue gets to be here is, 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 is as we look at that, is that they've been controlling through their dynasties they, by usurping the kingdoms shortly after the fall of, uh, you know, after the time of Babel, be able to control all of the people and will bring about an end time Armageddon if that one individual is permitted to come in and unite the world. And that time will come, but not, you know, not until God permits it to come. Yeah. But their 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 goal is is to destroy humankind. And they only want, even in the new Atlantis that Francis Bacon writes about, which is the recreation of that 10 demigod empire that's the golden age of the antediluvian world he has a religion that merges with science that works in harmony with the rulers in the new atlantis right? and does. <laughs> yeah so <laughs> all so, fall into place nicely for him isn't it 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 does, and he and he and he is the inspirational founder to the Royal Society, Francis Bacon, and he was a Rosicrucian, and his painting hangs in the lobby as you walk into the Royal Society even to this day, and that's why the subtitle to my book is you know not you know the first part's the Genesis six conspiracy, but it's how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. <laughs> That's nicely placed, Gary, nicely. <laughs> I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure, yeah. <laughs> it's just, just so, so many possible connections. And just, like you said, there's so many rabbit holes. Yeah, there are. And as you know, as we as we look at the things, I mean, I mean, we've been talking for I don't know how long now, but about this small little people that's recorded. Yeah. In the Labor Gabala and how that connects into this hidden history. Right. That's kept behind this secret vault. We get the superficial fairy tale story that's presented to us. So you have the characters, the places, but we don't get the full meaning. But the people that are writing this history, they know the full history that's embedded within those fairy tale stories. Yeah. And that the adepts, as they're taught into the mysteries, they understand the legamental language that is being used to, to produce this stuff. And 
the histories that they write even are encoded into the entertainment. And this is what you've seen that were written in the in the ancient Greek um, epics, you know, that we talked about in terms of Hesiod and in Homer or Ovides and Metamorphoses. This is this is what is being told in a fairy tale type manner that has their belief system, is in their religious system, their gods, their bloodlines, and their history embedded into it that rolls forward to the modern time. With one of the more famous people that we talked about being Francis Bacon, who Bacon, creates yeah. two writing societies. He creates the Knights of the Helmet, and he Knights creates the Helmet. Knights of the Helmet and the Spear Shaker Society, which the name Shakespeare probably comes from. And he brings into the secret society and creates writing guilds to not only write you know, encoded history into these writings, but to create a new language that he envisions is going to be the language that the rising English empire is going to export all around the world in preparation for his vision of the new Atlantis, that it would be the one world language, just as it was at Babel. And this is the language that he is going to have produced that King James, who is the one comes from the, uh, the 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 Bruce lineage, who makes it available for the Knights Templar to start Freemasons in Scotland <laughs> after the fall of the Knights Templar. Right? He's the Unicorn Dynasty, which is the unicorn is a is is a polytheist word for uh, a cherubim and or a, an animal that the Nephilim used to ride into war, a great white stallion with a huge horn and a few different colors. But um, you, you get sort of the idea. And they're going to use this to write the King James Version Bible. And Bacon was probably the second most powerful person in England, both at the end of the Elizabethan uh, dynasty or reign and the start of the Stuart dynasty with King James. And he had this vision and was the biggest proponent for the exploration of the new world and the creation of the United States, all to try and bring about this world government in his long-term sort of vision. The, the, the lengths that, that they, they've gone to. It's 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 a web that is absolutely staggering and it's so large, yeah. and that you, you just don't want to think that that that's possible. But everything, it but it is. And yeah. every time you take one individual piece and you understand it, you trace it back, and it's connected into this monstrous web or leviathan of of organizations, peoples, countries, and, and the history that's all interconnected. And if they weren't so vicious and weren't so much so rival, they would have been able to um, accomplish anything that they wanted, and particularly to eliminate humankind and replace it with their own race anytime they wanted. But they battle each other as much as 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 humans and you know they may direct they directionally have the same belief system but they all want to be that family that's going to to rule the world 
you remember that uh and i don't know whether you've seen it but it was a series of movies and a tv series called the highlander oh yes yes in in the in sort of the fairy tuatha de Danann tradition and typically when you take the head of a giant that's the only way you can kill him right all right and right and what happens in the highlander tradition is is that's the quickening where they take all of the uh and spiritual energy into their body it makes them stronger but at yes. the end of the day there can only be one that's going to rule the world right that's yeah, yeah. that's the antichrist um metaphor that's in there but it's coming from the bloodlines of the giants because those are the ones who had their heads taken just as david took goliath's head to make sure he was dead and <laughs> right and in the nephilim tradition it's not the lightning energy that gives you that immortality and that additional strength and that additional cognitive abilities it's the blood drinking Right? right just as right. we talked about that with dracula and the tartarian ones that that is you know where that blood drinking tradition comes from is from the the after the nephilim before the flood had lost their immortality because god stepped in in genesis 6:3 to limit all life going forward to 120 years including that of the giants they were trying to get that immortality back because they didn't yeah. want to have their body die and become demon spirits and that tradition yeah. goes on to to this day with the blood drinking in the polytheist occult secret societies and rituals even to this day at the at the upper level and so i don't think they would like to see the complete extermination of humankind because they want people for servants and they want people for workers and they want people for ritual sacrifice but that's just yeah. my opinion <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I think that's the second on that one, Gareth. <laughs> There's no more coincidences. They can't be. Can't be. No, it's just a matter of how we sort of understand what that history means and what they're doing with that today. That's the important thing to understand. So when you when you hear uh, all of this religious sort of nature that you know we have to come together as one government as one people and one religion so that we can have this as they take it to their religious beliefs a harmonic convergence where there's a collection of the spark of the divine the thousand points of light as the bushes said in several of their species both father and son um, for the new world order that's what they want to bring together and not for humankind but for this new atlantis that francis bacon had envisioned so with the georgia guidestones which a lot of people are familiar with down in in georgia in the united states there's these big stones that have um some writings on it and it's presumed to be rosicrucians um who put it there who are saying they want a world that only has 500 million people in it so the new age is only for the spark of the divine and then as many humans as they have to have um to go into the new world or maybe perhaps they just want ones that have lower level of the pure bloods so that they don't have any pure blood humans sort of start to keep things going but they want to bring that harmonic convergence so that they can transcend into godhood which presupposes 
immortality and unlimited knowledge. And so you have a convergence of this happening on with the knowledge and what they have to have going forward is some sort of storyline to say that we're going to give you physical immortality in the physical world. But lo and behold, we're getting transhumanism technology, we're getting DNA technology, and we're getting uh, clone technology coming together. And they're sort of foreshadowing what they want to be able to do with that technology in the entertainment, where you have this consciousness that is being downloaded into computers and transferring and stuff like that, so that you can just have these continuous manufactured oiketarians, a dwelling place for the spirit, in the physical world, which is a soul and a body, so a manufactured soul and a body for the spirit to be able to interact into the physical world is the physical immortality that I think they imagine that they'll be promising um, in the new age. It's all mind-blowing, Gary. <laughs> um, um, with regards to soul, Gary, um, the... Uh, sun gods would they be the same as like Mithras and and did you um, mention Saul at the beginning yeah O-S-O-L O-S-O-L S-O-L Sol Invictus yes yeah that is all the same imagery and sort of allegory so Sol Invictus and Mithraism were very popular branches of polytheism at the time of the Roman Empire and which is the religions that were sort of folded into Christianity by Con Constantine when he takes over the empire and creates Christianity as the state-sponsored religion. But what he's doing is he's trying to create a religion that's going to unite the empire. So it's a kind of a, a blended uh, homogenous religion. And with it, you get Sol Invictus and Mithraism um, that is linked into uh the imagery and some of the celebration days like Christmas, for example, um, which is the uh, birthday of, of Mithra. And that religion goes back to Zoroastrianism, which is the religion of the Indo-Aryans after the flood, the religion of the, uh, of the Raphaim and, and the Nephilim. So when we're talking about Mithraism, we're also talking about Mithra, who has a similar kind of um, birth date celebration with the 25th, understanding that Jesus, we don't know his birth date, but it would have been September, mid-September to early October because it was the uh, Christmas is the rainy season and all of the animals would have been in the stables and there wouldn't have been any available for Mary to have, have, have Jesus born there and that the shepherds are still in the field. So, the timing tends to be is is that um, it wasn't the rainy period and typically is understood that Jesus would have been born in September, October. But Mithra's birth date is December 25. And it's also a similar date for some other um, polytheist uh, religions of a similar type of God. And he's also has this mythology around him of a, of a resurrection. But it's not a resurrection. It's the standard reincarnation aspect taught to the royals to as they when they do die, they need the knowledge to be able to avoid going to the abyss. 
to the prison. Right. They gotcha. are there to, they, they need to guide their way through the underworld and or um, and, and, and reside there as opposed to be wandering spirits just on the earth. So it's knowledge about what they need to do not to go to the abyss. And so that's why we need to understand as Christians is, is that that's why we're told that when we die, our spirits go to sleep and our bodies go to sleep and they'll awaken in the resurrection. But demonic spirits do not. And so everything that is talked about in terms of the resurrection of these individuals, these are, you know, spirits that are wandering the earth. This is the hero worship that they're talking about that, you know, came back and and were worshipped by people, um, but in fear that because they were haunting them. And these are the same as the uh, as in Taoism, the vagabond ghost spirits. You know, they used to uh, put things over their doorways and things to prevent these spirits from, from coming in and terrorizing them. Right. So, yeah, mischievous. So, but in, nothing funny about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, would that mean, has Apollo got anything to do with Solon? I'm sorry, a hologram? Uh, uh, Apollo. Well, Apollo. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, he's he is the sun god, right? But yeah. Apollo. But every religion has, you know, sun gods, and so Osiris is a sun god, and Osiris. so typically, and again, we have to remember that there is a pantheon after the flood, which is the offspring gods, and we have a pantheon before the flood, which is the parent gods, and they're all going to have a allegorical title associated to them in that pantheon just as the sun is part of the seven planets of occultism which are the seven wandering stars that are talked about in the bible or planets right and so venus you know for a female mother goddess is typically understood as you know just to give another example as to what i'm talking about and so apollo would represent the sun in 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 the uh in the greek pantheon What's interesting, though, is is that, and not that it's the same word and the same direct connection, but Apollo is a part of a series of words in in the Greek lexicon, and one of those words is Apollyon, which means destroyer, and destroyer and Apollyon is one of the names that is applied to the king of the abyss that is going to come out of the abyss in the last seven years, Abaddon and Apollyon. And what's also interesting is is that Antichrist is known as the son of perdition. And perdition, perdition, yes. And perdition goes back to Apollyon. So Apollo is not Apollyon because he's a different god. Um, but Apollyon is, is, is a destroyer god, um, like a war god, um, that is going to be coming out of the abyss. And so it would be more like a god like Mars or something as a war god that I think would be more applicable to who this destroyer is. 
But it's interesting, though, that Azazel is the leader of the abyss in the Book of Enoch, and he's the one who is sent as the leader of the abyss and the leader of the fallen angels put into the abyss in, in the Book of Enoch. And Azazel is the one that is the destroyer and the scapegoat as the destroyer of the antediluvian world. And I think that this king of the abyss that's coming out is going to be Azazel, as talked about in, in, in the book of Enoch, who is a badman, who is Apollyon. And I also think that when we look at um, the abyss, I mean, you have to understand that um, CERN, as we talked about as one of these pan gods um, early on in the show, he is uh, associated with destroyer gods as well in, in, in some of the occult uh, mythos. And Shiva is a destroyer god. And so you have CERN as a scientific project that's trying to look into interdimensions um, yes. using AI and quantum computing. And you wonder whether or not they're trying to get into the abyss or they're trying to find the atma particles for, for the knowledge. And Shiva is the god that's being represented there that is, you know, they do dances and rituals too. And that's the destroyer god out of out of uh, Hindu, the Hindu religion. So I wonder about those connections. And it, it, it's a little bit loose, but there seems to be imagery there that's connecting all of that back to Azazel. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to Apollo. So. Right, right. So... <laughs> Again, the, the connections. It's yeah, it's still fascination. It is. And, you know, you do want to be careful. I mean, you can see connections, but I try not to get too carried away with the, the connections and the patterns unless I see that leading into a whole bunch of other things that are all sort of interconnected yeah. <laughs> as well. Um, because then, and then I start to put a little bit more validity to it. But. Yeah, there, there's uh, there's there's patterns out there that you know people take the time to sit back and look at clearly. You start to see them once you understand the language that they're talking in and the history that they really believe. And again, when you look at that pattern, and I talked about the Masonic societies, which are royal bloodlines, who created the royal society through the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. They overlay their belief system all throughout that, just as you see Shiva being part of the CERN project, just as you're seeing CERN as one of those satyr gods, a degraded seraphim angel, um, as part of the imagery for CERN, just as you have degrees in education, just as they have degrees in mysticism and secret societies, just as they honor their pantheon of gods using the the architecture of these institutions to honor their gods. I mean, they're all based on Egyptian and Greek and Roman uh, mythology and gods, and they yeah. name everything after those gods. I mean, just if you understand what they're what they're trying to do, things start to pop out, and you just I mean, you just can't but not see the obviousness once your eyes are open to what they're doing to emerge us in their culture and their religion. Yeah, they don't even hide it. 
it's just there, isn't it? it um, you either see it or you don't, I guess. Uh, but it is images everywhere. It is. And there's not much we can do about that, but we ought to be able to recognize um, what they're doing and, you know, take personal actions not to be deceived by them so easily. So you need to, you need to be act, you know, really asking good critical questions about everything that's going on today. <laughs> there's a lot going on as well, a lot. Fascinating. So, so the, like, but the Fomorians, um, when did, when did they sort of like when did they sort of like completely gone? Because like you said, there's very little information on them. There very is, little. and as I said, they they seem to have had at least in their mythos have been around for a long period of time afterwards. But they blend into from a physical perspective into the greater Tuatha Dé Danann nation that is going to be further diluted with the Malaysian invasion. So they're all sort of part of that whole cult and culture that becomes the the Irish um, history and the Irish culture. And that's in and it's interesting how many giants are uh, part of the uh, Irish culture as well. And so long and interesting yeah, I, um, study if somebody gets into that. And we also know that there seems to be a remnant that are living on the fringes throughout a long period of time. But, you know, we you don't really get any sort of mention of them after about sort of zero AD, so to speak, somewhere before that. So somewhere they totally get absorbed or they all died out by uh, by that point in time. And the only thing you get afterwards from them are the demonic spirits. All ah, right, right. So it's it sort of a bit like similar to Nephilim types, you think? Yeah. Along yeah. those lines. Yeah. It's like supernatural type. Yep. Um, what, what else is, um, it's got you like, like thinking a little, is me saying like the, the her. I can't, you can't help but not think of Sasquatch. Um, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, and and obviously Sasquatch is different than um, these kinds of creatures, right? Yeah, Sasquatch yeah. would be maybe a little bit more akin to the ogre, but I think ogre might be a better fit for the Fomorians than 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 Sasquatch or Bigfoot. But you know, you, you get this tradition of Bigfoot, Yeti and all the different names all around the world. And it's the same sort of historical legacy that's in all cultures on all continents around the world. Yeah. And yeah. they're intelligent beings. They're hairy. They tend to live in caves. They seem to be connected to portals somehow that they might cross over. They're connected to the little people somehow, some way. They have uh, shining eyes, different colors of, of shining eyes. Um, and they seem to be the same kind of sort of creation as as the Nephilim, but distinct, distinct like the, the Cyclops or the Fomorians were yeah. slightly distinct from a different kind of angel or, or uh, offspring creation of, of, of the angels. So um, they seem to be connected. They seem to be part of that whole um, organizational structure of the, of the visible um, extension of the invisible, if I could put it that way, and that uh, 
I think they're 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 connected, and I think we have way too many stories about Bigfoot and Sasquatch and Yeti uh, from all around the world to dismiss it, and it's, they've been with us throughout our history. And the only way I sort of can reconcile that is is they're part of those beings, and they're and we also know they're intelligent, right? So I think that they're part of the second incursion again after the flood because i tend to think ah, right. prob- probably the balim um from the canaanite perspective in mount Hermon, which is be the same representative pantheon around the world just different names of gods in the in, in the culture after the flood that if they did re- recreate these beings that were around before the flood they would have gone to the abyss as punishment as well and that's why i think we see the Balim and their associated kin pantheons around the world. The gods disappear. They stop interacting at some point in time, even to the point where we talked about earlier in the show in the Ugaritic text. They want Astaroth and uh, Baal to come back to produce more gods, right? They want yeah. they want to be able to have more of their divine representatives because they're becoming fewer and fewer in number on the earth. And the Ugaritic texts are dated to... I'm thinking, if my memory serves me correct, somewhere around 14 to 1600 BC, as a, as those writings are um, were written down. Long time so, ago. A long time ago, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's 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 all part of that. That we didn't see the fallen angels interacting or the gods interacting with humans in the same way after that second incursion happens and those angels disappear. And I think there's not all the fallen angels are in the abyss. I just think is that they know that if they want to remain outside the abyss, because the abyss is not a nice place, the 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 prison, that yeah. they're not they're not going to break those violations that the two sets of gods did, and that they're still interacting with humans in a spiritual way. And, and can probably still take a physical presence like a satyr god, a degraded god, a like devil a god, god as they're called, in the, a goat god, yeah. yeah. Um, but they're very careful not to cross those lines because they don't want to go to the abyss. And so if that's the case, and I think it is, they and the demon spirits are still working through their representatives on earth through the secret societies, through the polytheist religions, through their royal bloodlines, and communicating with them and trying to bring about the end time. Yeah, so they're, trying to, they're still trying to control everything, even oh, yeah. though they, but physically not. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, and, they, and, and, and the Bible is very... Away. And the Bible is very clear is that we not only battle the visible, but also the invisible ones. Yeah, is it, would that be like for example, spiritual warfare. Yes. Just, uh, it's just that endless fascination, Gary. Yeah, it's, uh, it's again, and, and hopefully this, you know, the show we did today uh, shows, sheds a little bit more light on some of the yeah, history. And always some of does, the mate, always does. Yep. Always does. Brilliant. And, and, and again, I look at, you know, this, this globalist movement that's going on. 
and all of the you know apocalyptic nature to drive people into it to cattle herd people in from both sides like you get um these extremes everything is done in extremes and they're trying to to pummel people from those two sort of versions and force them into the middle and then force them into the shoot into the open hands of the globalists so that they create this sense of fear that we're going to destroy ourselves from the face of the earth and that this is going to become even more stronger i don't care whether it's war i don't care whether it's global warming uh, climate change um, nuclear holocaust uh, alien introduction i mean whatever it is it's all seemingly geared to drive us into a globalist government the trouble is is that they keep running into speed bumps and it's not happening how they want it to happen but that doesn't stop them from continuing and it won't no, it doesn't, it doesn't. and 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 every catastrophe that happens is an opportunity to create more anarchy and create more of that push towards centralization and we're seeing that with one of the the sorrows which is the pestilences and how that is promoting the because it transcends all of the borders, right? And those are the topics that they tend to use to try and get people to say, if you want to not be destroyed from the face of the earth, because there's going to be more pestilences coming, then you have to accept uh, a centralist solution, which is globalist government. Yeah. Well, uh, I, 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 you couldn't get more chaos than that, like the example of open borders. Uh, yeah. People might think, oh, it's it's simple, but it, it's not. Uh, I, I guess there's pros no, and cons, with, like with anything. But uh, well, here's the thing. I mean, I mean, I mean, nobody wants to be sort of viewed as saying, "Hey, we're elitists. We don't want to share. We want to do this." But with the open borders thing, is is if there's no control and separation. I mean. There are so many people in the world, they're going to collectively go to all of the, sort of let's say the best places, right? But there'll be too many people there that will sort of destroy the whole environment of that area and it's gone. And, and the elites won't like that, will they? No, they won't. So uh, so their version of, of uh, world government um, isn't, in the short-term tactic of open borders. That's there to create anarchy. Once they get their global government, then it'll be hard territories, a hard 10 territories, 10 empires, just as the Club of Rome has divided up the world since the late 1960s in preparation for this. Uh, I think they'll, the borders will change a little bit, and I think we're seeing the rise of some of those uh, trading blocks, groups of nations, spheres of influence, get used to spheres of influence of being used even more so just as Russia wants to get their uh, sphere of influence, you know, the Tartarian part of the empire that we talked yes. about in the last show. And you see China doing the same thing. You're going to see more of that. But once those territories are formally established, there's not going to be free flow of people. Yeah, for sure. Because it's been centralized. 
uh, and you've got 10 representatives who are going to have their own super empires and an antichrist is going to come along three and a half years later so right, right. do you think it's uh, it's coming closer you think gary i think so i think i think we can see it on the horizon you know we're not in the last seven years as a lot of people like to say because we don't have world government yet we don't have a global religion yet um, and you don't have the people of judah able to do their sacrifice on a wing of their holy temple uh, at this point in time that's going to require a universal religion to sort of bring that about to permit them to do their sacrifices again on a wing of, of, of their temple, which is where the Islamic mosque is. And, but I think we're in the fig tree generation, and I think that um, we're in the, the time of sorrows, the birth pangs, as I like to call them, and we're seeing those birth pangs, and those are wars and rumors <laughs> of wars. Pangs. Love it. Yeah, they are uh, pestilence, they are pandemic, and they are earthquakes, and you might even throw the roaring of the seas in there, as Luke talks about. They're going to get stronger. Um, so we may be we may be in, in, in that last generation, but we're a ways away and we won't get close to the last seven years until we get those three huge stumbling blocks settled. But catastrophes tend to drive prophecy. And so the larger the cat catastrophe, the more anarchy and the ability to sort of bring that about. So look for more, because uh, I think all of the sorrows, as they're described in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and 21 are contrived. And they oh, are the same. They are contrived. They are right. human created and manipulated to derive their agenda. And they are the same catastrophes that are in the seal judgments that destroys 25% of the world and 25% of the people. They are the same ones that are in the trumpet judgments that destroys 33% and are the same that are in the wrath bowls that would destroy everything except that Jesus comes back first. And all of this tends to be that's happening in our history seems to be through free choice in my opinion. And so I think these catastrophes are going to be human driven. And so I think in the latest one that we've seen um, that uh, hits into the medical association um, in the medical field and the pandemic is part of those sorrows, part of those birth pangs, and they're going to get stronger as we go. You may find this interesting as, as well. Um, when we talked about sorcerers before, yeah, uh, as being the, la uh, the last or the first of the scientists with the creation of the Royal Society in modern education and modern science, and that this was the language of the same people, of the language that they created via Francis Bacon and his writing guilds that became sort of world famous through the King James Version Bible. Roll this yeah. forward to the book of Revelations. We get four times in the book of Revelations the word sorcery, sorcerers, sorcerer. It all goes back to the same set of words. It's pharmacos, pharmacus, and um, pharmakia. And Babylon controls the whole world. Babylon is the end time religion that's going to establish the 10 king empire. 
controls the world through her sorceries, pharmacia. And pharmacia is the root word for pharmaceuticals and pharmacies. And you see what's going on in the push for continual vaccinations. And I'm not anti-vaccine. Yes. I'm just anti some of the technology in vaccines like they're producing because that's the cutting edge wedge that could be developed and, and uh, used for DNA manipulation down the road. I'm not saying it does today. I'm just saying it's the beginning of that technology yeah. and yeah. understand that Babylon is going to control the world through the sorceries. Um, yeah, that, that's so evident. You don't think there's, there's no other way of explaining it, really. That, that, that's, how, that's how I would see it as well. Yeah, I mean we're headed we're headed in into something, and yeah, I, I mean like for example, Gary, you know, with with the the vaccinations, um, mm -hmm. oh, this, this suddenly people who are vaccinated need to get this booster. They need to get it. Yeah, um, and and, then, and and they don't even know the efficacy of it. <laughs> what what is it for exactly? It's just oh, you just need it. Yeah, you have um, to have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the other thing that's going along with this is is this, this um, vaccine passport. And again, this is not the mark of the beast yet, but it's it's the sort of conversion of kind of the technologies that you know the 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 passport, at least in Canada, is a QR code. It's like a, a, a mark, code. right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's not the mark of the beast, but when we look at the converging technologies that will be part of the mark of the beast, I mean, this becomes part of that march towards that. Yeah. And so, uh, and then they want to be able to use this all around the world. I, I don't think they're going to get it done the way they want to get it done. They're running out of time and there's going to have to be another kind of pandemic that's going to be on the heels to be able to yeah. complete yeah. the complete it but they're they're trying to use this to be able to travel to be able to work to be able to go to restaurants and We've down the road shopping everything they're trying to get for aren't they basically yes you um, will see that as a development as an evolution of this as the technology rises to act the to bring about the full capability of what the mark of the beast will be so that that it's in place in the time of babylon and ready for antichrist when he takes power it's just mind-blowing uh, and mind-blowing not in a good way and not in a good way so where, where wherever we are in the time or wherever somebody is in their belief system we are moving in a direction um that is cattle herding us into that direction yeah and at whatever's at the end of and i'll mix metaphors or whatever is that light is at the end of the tunnel <laughs> is is not going to be good. It's probably a train. <laughs> yeah, just not a good light. Yeah, I think that, that's probably the best way of describing it. More and more fascination, Gary. Every time we speak, so always something new. Um, always something new. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, so, uh, I, like I said, the Fomorians, um there's very little on them, but now, uh, well, you just schooled me. So thank you, sir. 
Well, you're you're welcome. So I think it was a fascinating yeah. conversation, and uh, oh, yeah, we got into a few other things. But yeah, it's an interesting part of history, you know, and it's part of that fairy mythology. And again, in some aspects, I mean, they're known as not only giants but part of the elven mythos the elven. as well. Yes, elven. the elven bloodline. But understand that the Tuatha Dé Danann is the elven bloodline, like the bloodline of the of the fates. It's the bloodlines of the giants it's the bloodline of the shining ones so and that's the uh, same type of understanding as you as you get into um, the Gnosticism of the Cathars and uh, the Elbigensians which were the religion of the Knights Templar um, in, in their time but anyways it's uh, there is a connection into the elven bloodline just as the as we talked about in genesis 36 with the dukes of edom that's the uh that is the uh, hebrew word aleph which they transliterate into elf into elven as in the bloodline and of course those are the horim which are part of the raphaim which are part of those four branches or the root part of the four branches of the indo-aryans and the scythians and uh, the Aryans. so uh, all it's connected. Just so vast. It's yeah. Yep. Uh, fascinating, Gary. Fascinating. Um, right, Gary, do you want to let everybody know where they can get hold of you, please, sir? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is through my website. If you have some questions or if I've got a document on something that you're looking for, I don't have anything on the four Morians. Um, but I have lots of information and people are hearing me talk about things. So if I've got a document, I can send it to you. But if you want to just ask me a question, there's a contact the author button on the website. Yeah. And uh, you can contact me through there or through Messenger on Facebook or on my timeline in Facebook. And uh, on my website also, um, you can connect over to the Kindle for the digital version or to amazon.com and to barnesandnoble.com to, to buy the book from there or you can buy it off my website i have been having some issues on my purchase page lately so i can also transact through paypal and i can provide my paypal account i'm hoping on tomorrow i will finally have that purchase page figured up because i am switching over the vendor on that completely because too much grief <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you work hard enough, mate. You don't want any additional, do you? No, exactly. Um, well, what, what I'll do anyway is um, before I um, add my show notes, I'll just check with you, make sure everything's working fine for her. Yep. Um, yep. Sounds all right, that, doesn't it? Right. Okay. Gary? Yep. Um, yep. Is there anything Perfect. else you think? Yeah, um, or. I think we'll... <laughs> again, no, I think we've so covered. So much covered again. <laughs> yep. Okay, thanks. Brilliant, Gary. Bye. Okay, uh, have a nice night, mate, and I will still speak to you again soon. Yep, we will. Okay, thanks, mate. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye. Bye.